the fourth watch starts now. Everybody, you're listening to the Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. I hope everyone's having a blessed week. Tonight we continue our supernatural excursion into the highly anticipated reptilian species series. We'll be tracking through many strange beliefs and historical periods tonight, covering everything from the Starfire culture and blood drinking rituals to New Age dragon channeling and Lilith all the way to the real-life Dracula and the Order of the Dragon, and so much in between. This is a proliferating area of research in the New Age culture we live, and tonight, we join the conversation. We've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and start the adventure. Submitted for the approval of the Fourth Watch Radio Network, I call this episode DNA of the Dragons. Reptilian Species Volume 2 with special guest Gary Wayne. Well, it's officially Thursday, and that means it's officially time for the fourth watch. It is such a blessing to be back with you all, and we've got a great show on tap tonight. If you're a new listener, we're very grateful to have you tuning in, and we want to let you know that there's a brand new show posted every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard. Be sure to head on over to fourthwatchradio.com. That's F O U R T H W A T C H R A D I O.com. Fourthwatchradio.com. There you'll find show archives, links to our free mobile apps for Apple and Android devices, links to all of our websites, as well as a donate page that will show multiple ways you can help support the Fourth Watch Ministries. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes if that's your preferred method of listening. A couple quick reminders, Hollow Earth Chronicles is on sale and available in multiple formats, including DVD and instant HD streaming. You can secure your copy right now at fourthwatchfilms.com. That's fourthwatchfilms, all spelled out, .com. This is a powerful and groundbreaking, high-quality documentary that you won't want to miss. So be sure to get your hands on a copy or stream it today at fourthwatchfilms.com. Also, our mailing address has changed for those who like to send in letters, questions, and support. So be sure to head over to fourthwatchradio.com and click the support our ministry tab, and there you'll find the new mailing address. We are no longer using the Georgia mailing address, so please make note of that. Finally, the Android app is back, so be sure to download your copy for free in the Google Play Store or follow the link from our website. Now, tonight we welcome back my good friend and fellow researcher, Gary Wayne, as we continue our discussion on the reptilian species. This is a topic that permeates our modern culture in various secret societies, movies, video games, and even cartoons. As we study this area, we find a truly deep and rich history of this bloodline and beliefs surrounding it in nearly every culture in some form or another. I know you've been waiting some time for this episode, as have I. So let's go ahead and welcome back on Gary Wayne of Genesis6Conspiracy.com. Gary, welcome back to the Fourth Watch. How are you tonight? 
Doing very good and uh, so happy to be back to do part two of our first conversation. And I think it was uh, probably caught a few people off guard with the, the depth of detail and connections around the world and hoping we can do the same thing again tonight. Absolutely. The reptilians. You hear that you, you hear that word and it's like horror movie slash sci-fi slash conspiracy theory. And, you know, again, I always had an issue with this. Uh, when I used to hear about reptilians years ago, it would bother me. I couldn't really cope with it. I always thought it was just kind of a myth. Uh, and I would always think, well, that's just a David Icke myth or David Icke, whatever you want to call him, David Icke, Icke, because um, you know, he was one that really promoted the idea of the reptilians. But then I began to study and research and I said, wow, this actually is real. And it, it changed my view on things. It changed my view on spiritual warfare. Uh, and it really it gave me a deeper knowledge of Genesis chapter six. And so, you know, the last show we did, I know we, we, we put a lot of information in a short time, um, but we've got a lot more information to cover tonight. So, so ladies and gentlemen, definitely get ready. You may want to take some notes on this one. Um, we are going to dive right back in. And we're, we're, tonight we're picking up on the more modern stuff. Now, I, I want to make a point, Gary. Some of the modern, obviously we say this is modern, but it, it's all connected. It's all connected to the ancient stuff. So I'm just mentioning it because there are accounts in the modern world that tie back to these things. And one of those accounts is Dracula. And I, we've mentioned Dracula before on the program, uh, several shows actually. He's come into conversation. But his bloodline is still in power today, even in the United States. I mean, we literally, we have uh, the, the bloodline ties of Dracula all the way up into the presidents of the United States of America. Um, and and I, I, you know, I, I could be wrong about Obama being directly descended from Dracula, but I know Obama is related distantly to George Bush, and George Bush is in the direct lineage of Dracula or Vlad the Impaler. So why don't we start off tonight by talking about Dracula, and then we're going to move into some, some other areas, but what, what's the myth? Because we're, we're going to get into the history and, and, and the pact that took place, but, but what, what, what's the historical myth, or if you want to tie it all together any way you want, Gary, I'm just going to give the floor to you. Sure, sure. And just to underscore what you're just saying uh, with the presidents and uh, bloodlines linking back to uh, Dracula. So there's also another connection in, in there that the presidents connect back through the Plantagenet dynasty, which is very much connected in with these bloodlines. And secondly, Prince uh, Charles of England uh, is famous, and uh, I put out a posting on it every once in a while, uh, that he claims that his lead lines go back to uh, Vlad the Impaler, which is who the modern vampire sort of archetype is is built on for the vampire. And so uh, there's actually that sort of turning point in history in terms of where there's a whole mythos that is established around uh, Vlad the Impaler and Dracula as we've come to know him, and all of the mythologies and s stories and genres that have sprung off of that, and particularly with, particularly with Bram Stoker's book in the late 1800s about Dracula, and its more ancient connections. So we can start with Dracula and then work back, or we can start uh, in the ancient times and work forward, but... Uh, unless you say differently, I think we'll start with Dracula. Perfect. Okay, so as I just mentioned, uh, Dracula is based on Vlad the Impaler. And uh, he is also uh, a son of another individual named Vlad as well. 
And of course, Vladimir in the uh, sort of Slavic nations is is a princely title, uh, and so very much connected to the uh, the ancient czars that come out of Russia. So again, we're talking about bloodlines and interconnections here. And so this Vlad uh, the Impaler, uh, he was a very very interesting uh, character because uh, he was uh, son of a dragon. And when you look at the word Dracula, Dracul means dragon. Uh, and when you put the A on the end of it, it means son of a dragon. So again, we have this natural sort of allegory that's built into Vlad the Impaler. And there's an interesting organization that is organized in around 1397 to 1400 called, known by two names. One is called the Sarkhani Rond, uh, S-A-R-K-A-N-A-Y, Rond, R-E-N-D, better known as Ordo Draconis. Uh, So again, we have this sort of dragon uh, imagery. And in the the last interview, I went through some of the etymology on dragon and Dracula and Dracon and Dracanta and all the different variations uh, uh, that it it has. Uh, But this was an organization that was organized by the Rosicrucians after uh, the fall of uh, the king of the Templar organization from the inner organization to the outer organization, which was sort of an occult sort of splitting that was called the Cutting of the Elms in 1188 at Easter Castle. And so out of that organization, you have the formation of sort of the modern Rose Cross movement. Again, understanding the Templars donned the Rose Cross. And the Rosicrucians uh, are the nobles uh, that were part of the backing of the Templars. And so they were very much in the background and still remain hidden. But they come together to form the Ordo Draconis with Sigismund of Hungary. Sigismund, uh, I don't think I pronounced it quite the first time there. And he is crowned Holy Roman Empire in 1411. And then um, this organization is established, um, and this is all very, very important to understand this crossroads of history that we're talking about where the mythology changes and who Vlad the Impaler was, and then linking that back to, to Dracula. So they form this, this new group of all nobles and princes of Europe, and they have a twofold agenda. One is to put the dragon kingships back on the thrones of Europe. And this is after uh, the fall of the Plantagenets uh, in England as well. So they're being pushed back and off the thrones. And the Tudors, the House of Tudor, is now in power in, in England. And so they're trying to regain their kingships and regain the power they had. And they're also organizing to redevelop the pursuits of Thoth, or the development of the seven sacred sciences. And out of this, with a few other organizations and a little more history, in 1660, you get the development of the uh, Royal Society to do the same thing, to develop the seven sacred sciences. And, of course, it's the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons that are forming that. Now, in 1439, Vlad III is uh, inducted into the Ordo Draconis by Sigismund. And he is uh, uh, known as Lord Draconis. 
And, uh, and we already mentioned he is the son of Lad, who was known as Dracul. And, of course, that's the father, and, and the son is, is, is Dracula. And Vlad III was uh, an interesting individual. He was known as a noble Celt. And that's very, very important to understand who the Celts come from. Uh, although they do branch off into different areas, you do see them popping up as the Scythians and the Sarmatians uh, as they migrate to England and then the Scythians as they migrate up into Russia and some, some other locations. But the Scythians and particularly the Sarmatians, who their name kind of changes, but they're basically three tribes. There's Scythians, there's Sarmatians, and there's the Amazons. The Sarmatians, which are sort of take over at a certain point in history, I think around one or two hundred AD, um, as, as my memory recalls, they were known as the lizard people or the dragon people and going back to Nephilim and, and of course, that dragon image. And they used to wear uh, armor that had green scales so that they would, you know, actually look like a, a dragon or a serpent while they were in battle. So he's known as a noble kill. And he was educated, uh, we're talking about Vlad the Impaler here, he was educated at the Mystery School of Solomon in Austria. So again, it's important to understand these connections. And he was an adept of alchemy and also an adept of the star, starfire culture. And starfire is a legament or an allegory for the drinking of blood. So, again, we see this being connected and and with the blood drinking cult that descends out of the Nephilim, who the Scythians also descend from. And he was uh, Vlad was an interesting character because he was also affected by sunlight. And because he had an irritation to sunlight, he became a night person or a night operative. And that is an interesting word where that develops out of which is upier, which I'll come back to maybe a little bit later in uh, the more ancient account of of vampires and dragons. I hate to interrupt you. You're on a roll. Can you spell that real quick? Because uh, when we come back to that, I'm, I'm, people are going to want to look this up. How do you spell upier? Sure. O-U-P-I-E-R-E. And this shows up in a popular series on Netflix um, currently, we're going to come back to this. I, I hate to get you off track, Gary. Please, please take the mic. Hey, no problem. Uh, interrupt as often as you like uh, to get clarification because there's a lot of information that we're going to cover today. And this is in the tradition of Oberon. And again, I'm just going to mention that quickly right now, and we'll probably come back to it because Oberon is known for two things. One of the Tuatha de Non, uh, which is also connected back to Scythia, and also Oberon is king of the fairies. Uh, in Midsummer's Night Dream uh, by Shakespeare. And, of course, his wife is Titania, which is a female Titan or Nephilim. So, again, just making some of these connections on some of the things that we'll come back to a little bit later. And so um, Vlad, because of his occult training, he drank the blood because uh, he wanted to develop his cognitive abilities and to live longer sort of again in that old Nephilim tradition. And so we have uh, an individual here that uh, is being is going to be uh, transformed into the Dracula character where we see 
a lot of that coming through in the true sort of mythology or mythos that he's a night operating vampire, blood sucking, blood drinking. He's pale skin. He has green eyes generally uh, and a reddish hair if he's shown with red hair, which is again part of the Tuatha Danon and Oberon sort of heritage that's mixed in. And he has the teeth of a cobra. Uh, which is, you know, again, like the Naga that we talked about last week. The Naga goes back to the word describing cobra in Sanskrit as opposed to snake, which is sarpa. And also the cobra is the same sort of neck and head dressing around a cobra that the pharaohs had. And again, I mentioned the pursuits of Thoth in the reestablishment of Ordo Draconis uh, going forward. And then what's also interesting about this this creation of uh, the transformation of Vlad the Impaler into uh, Dracula is is that the insignia for the uh, the surviving um, Dragon Court of Luxembourg emblem was known as uh, the Oribus or the uh, dragon and curved with a circle and clutching its tail or biting its tail. So again, we have all of this sort of uh, imagery that's floating around who Dracula is. And so this is also then complemented by the fact that by drinking blood, Dracula is becoming immortal. And again, this is an ancient Nephilim tradition that they, once their lives were limited 120 years, as I understand Genesis 6, then they were always trying to create immortality after that and turn to drinking blood. And so this goes all the way back to the Antediluvian Epoch with that sort of understanding. And it's what the occult and secret societies continue to do today in their secret rituals. A big part of that is, is, is blood drinking and a whole bunch of other abominations, but blood drinking, we'll just leave it at that at this point. And so we also have... Vlad as being set up as a prince or a royal bloodline, which he is, just as Lord Draconis or Lord Dracula, as he's known, is a noble in in Romania or Transylvania, where the story sort of situates, because he's representing this hidden bloodline in legomen or allegory or figurative language, however you want to call that. And this bloodline always in the old type of vampires, not necessarily as it's morphing in the last 10 or 15 years on vampires, but from the Bram Stoker Dracula mythos is the enemy of Christianity. And so you have these two forces that are fighting all of the time. So I think that's probably a good place to stop and let let you jump in and and see where you want to go with this from here. Okay, so... One of the things that kind of sticks out to me about the Dracula story, um, and I want to say, historically, this, this guy's real. You know, pe- people can sit back and they can they can have their, their opinions and say, well, it's just Hollywood. But this goes far beyond Hollywood because Hollywood is new compared to Dracula. Dracula goes way back, as you've stated. He's a historical person um, from a historical bloodline, which is still in power. And one thing I want to mention about him, we, we, we talk about this blood drinking idea and the first thing that comes to my mind, Gary, is 
we have these beliefs that a human being, and I'm going to just kind of tie this into what we know as the modern vampire mythos. We have this thought that you you drink the blood of a vampire or a vampire bites you. You know, there's two there's two main sources that I've heard in my research, and then a human being can go through a transformation process. Now, of course, Hollywood gets into the idea, and I think that's probably where we get the idea of a, of a vampire biting you and turning you, but um, they do drink the blood, and I've heard accounts of people in the occult who say that they drank the blood of a fallen angel and and maybe even, uh, by extension, a Nephilim, a modern Nephilim, who knows, but they say that in a, in a ritual that there was bloodletting that took place and the blood was was poured out unto a human, and that by taking in that blood, they entered into a covenant with that being, and they started to be transformed. Um, now, I guess the concern here is that new research is showing up that people that have unprotected sex, uh, the DNA stores, like, like the man's DNA literally stores in the woman's body. Um, I mean, it, sometimes forever. So th- there's a lot of very interesting research that we have in modern science that would show that if you drank someone's blood, or even if they bit you and there was a blood transfer that there would be that DNA in your system quite possibly for the rest of your life. But how would that actually affect the human being in the ritual? And I, I know we can probably only speculate on this, and I want to be careful speculating on this because uh, at, at no point do I want to promote any occult systems that are based on myth. I, I want to kind of investigate this from a realist perspective, but where do you think this kind of, where, where does the rubber meet the road with the blood drinking and the, the DNA transformation? Again, what's your opinion? Well, it's certainly, there's something there. Again, as you mentioned, we can only speculate. What we do know, though, is, uh, you know, in Genesis, Noah is, you know, advised not to drink blood because he's going to be accounted for his blood. And we know it's also laws in, in Leviticus. Um, and it's also underlined again in Acts when, the Gentiles are brought into the new covenant. You know, they're really only limited about three things. And one is, is, uh, eating food polluted by, you know, idols, uh, eating, you know, in, so obviously in, in, in rituals, you know, sexual immortality, uh, immorality, I mean, uh, which again is connected to what you're saying. And of course, the drinking of blood. Um, so, uh, and, you know, and strangle, you know, from strangled animals or, However, they do it. So they believe in the occult that it has the ability to lengthen their lives and it increases their cognitive abilities. And one would think that if it has the ability to do that, then it has the ability to uh, not just add on, but you have, I think it probably adds on a change in the DNA because, you know, God limits the DNA and the lifespan to 120 years. So if you're limited, and you're going to extend that, that pretty much, in my understanding, has to do to a reprogramming and rewiring of, of the DNA, or at least changing it in a, in a manner that it wasn't designed to do, as God does in Genesis 6. So uh, I think there's a definite connection there. And you're right in on your other point that uh, it, it uh, this, now I'm going to back up just a step here. Here on two points here. One is is that if you go back to Atlantean mythology, uh, and they had these two dragons that were uh, guarding the the world tree, and of course the world tree dragons Atlantis. This is all part of the occult prehistory. They used to tap 
the dragons and drink their blood to do the same thing. So when you talk about drinking the blood of an actual descendant of the Nephilim or who might have those hybrid uh, types of blood and DNA in them or perhaps a manifestation of a dragon or, or perhaps a manifestation of a fallen angel in the physical world to tap that blood, that, again, is sort of constitutive that goes right back into uh, prehistory and, and their, their core beliefs. And they just didn't bite the neck to drink the blood. I'm sure they could do that. I think that's more for grandma than anything else. Um, but typically they would drink the blood, right? And they would drink it from goblets um, and or skulls as the Sarmatians uh, used to do. Um, and this is the overlay that goes on to the Grail and the King Arthur tales that were written by uh, uh, writers sponsored by the Knights Templar and the Parisian of, of, of uh, the Middle Ages, because the Grail actually goes back to Scythian and Sarmatian mythology again, just as Excalibur does and that whole idea. So King Arthur is just this overlay, this Christian overlay with a hidden subtext or a fairy tale where the superficial narrative isn't the real story, it's the meaning underneath. And if you go back into history, I'm going to connect this to the grail and the drinking here fairly quickly here for you, Justin, and for the audience. But the grail has a couple of allegories as they believe in these bloodlines and the kingship. So this is another dragon kingship that we're talking about uh, in England, and the whole Camelot dynasty is a, is a bloodline genealogy of the uh, the Grail bloodlines that also intermarries into the Merovingian bloodline. But the Grail is known um, as being an allegory for dragon bloodlines, um, and in particularly the the maternal bloodline of the of, of the Grail queen is uh, the Rosicrucis. And the nectar of the supreme excellence, and also known as starfire. So again, you got all these other sort of allegories that are interlaced. Just as the Grail is thought to be uh, not as we understand it today, which is Sangral, which is holy or royal chalice that most people think is the blood that's collected off of the cross uh, by Joseph of Arimathea. It's not that. It's the bloodline of the Nephilim bloodlines and secondarily their overlay of Jesus and Mary Magdalene's bloodline that marries into the Camelot dynasties. But the word Graal, uh, Grail goes back to an ancient word, word, word called Graal, G-R-A-A-L, and that was a chalice or cauldron of Sumeria where blood was drank from. So very similar sort of ideology to what the Scythians, which, uh, of course, Dracula was a noble Celt, uh, just as the Tuatha Dé Danann and just as the Camelot dynasties come out of the Tuatha Dé Danann. Um, it was also known as another legumen allegory as Song Graal, that's S-A-N-G-R-E-A-L, or Holy or Royal Bloodline as it is known by that spelling, or San Real, S-A-N-R-E-A-L, or Holy or Royal Blood. And again, this is all very, very, very important to understand that this blood drinking aspect 
has been maintained and kept as part of the bloodlines, as part of the genealogies and part of the occult ritual all the way through history. And, of course, the original Grail Queen in the occult is Lilith, who I'll connect in by more definitions, uh, probably in a few minutes as we start to get to it. And and she was the, the matrilineal inheritance of Malkut, or the Grail Queen of the Antediluvian Epoch. So, as you can see, where all of this is heading is, is just an ongoing mythos of genealogies and occult history. And we see that no matter what area of history that we approach, we're going to find that all of these different myths that, that, that have just surfaced um, and it's like we, we know more now with modern technology. With, with our technology, we can we can pull up all these myths and we can get down, I mean, even to origin points. And we find out that it's like every occult culture of the world practically um, continues these practices from thousands of years ago all the way up until modern day. It doesn't matter where the origin point is. We see the same occult behavior when it comes to blood drinking. Exactly, exactly. And it even goes back to... A connection with Cain, you know, and as I mentioned before, the word starfire, um, it's also known um, as the uh, divine menstruum because a lot of times it's mixed with the, with uh, the menstruum of a of a goddess or somebody of a hybrid royal bloodline for drinking, and this was believed in their occult belief system was considered a noble supplement only for the royal bloodlines to make help keep them superior. And it's also known under the Starfire understanding as, as the lunar essence of the Dragon Queen from the female menstruum. And in this long line of allegory and symbolism, you see Cain sometimes spelt with a Q as it comes out of uh, ancient languages and Q A Y N would be uh, the typical one for Cain, and of course that's the 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 variation that the occultists particularly like to use for Cain because um, that is connects right back to Cain, who they believe was a Nephilim king in the serpent. Uh, seed bloodline, and again, I know there's a lot of Christians that that uh, believe in the, in the in the serpent seed through Cain, but this is also an occultic Gnostic constitutive doctrine, and so he starts the first line of Nephilim kings in that sort of belief system. Now, I, we just for the record, and I, I think we may have said this in the first show we did on this. Uh, neither you or I or or the Fourth Watch Network, do, we don't support the view that Cain was a Nephilim. Um, I just want to make that clear to everybody. Um, I believe it can be disproven with Scripture in like three minutes. Well, yeah, you, you have to bring in allegory and insert that allegory to usurp the, the literal meaning of, of the rest of the narrative there. Uh, and I do recognize that Cain uh, sounds like the word acquired as you take that back to Hebrew. Um, but clearly uh, uh, it says in most translations that you know, Adam, you know, lays with Eve and they and they have Cain. Although I know there is an alternative translation there that says acquired as well. But that connection is so tenuous um, that you have to force every other thing that people are going to use in reference to support the theory. And 
I think it's an interesting theory. I don't think it's needed. And it's certainly no, there's no smoking gun in the Bible that says that it's true. And then the other thing that is the red flag, as you mentioned, it is constitutive in the Gnostic religion that Cain was a Nephilim and son of Cain or son of other uh, uh, angels that raped Eve or, uh, and I I think we mentioned this in the last show as well, or as a, the son of Lilith and Satan uh, who they give to Adam and Eve to raise. And so that sort of leads me back to, to where I led off with the Lilith, and I'm going to finish up on a little bit with Lilith, but I'm going to link back uh, first through what I talked about with Oberon back to, to Lilith and back to vampires and ancient witches. So Oberon, as we talked about, uh, derives from the king of the fairies or the Elbigens of the elven fairy bloodline, as it's known in the Gnostic religions, particularly coming out of the Elbigesenians and the Cathars, who the Templars and Rosicrucians are all intermixed with. I mean, southwest France was the center for rebellion, which brought on the Inquisition by the Catholic Church, not that I'm supporting uh, what the Catholic Church did, but they actually were rising to the power level of Catholicism, and uh, they've... They were, they believe that they have evidence that would bring down the Catholic Church. So these two, these two powers have been arguing for a long time. Let's just leave it at that, not get too far down that rabbit hole. And so Oberon is, is the king of the fairies. Um, and Oberon derives from the Teutonic Ober, O-B-E-R, which is Aryan, which is again part of the mix of Nephilim survival and occult sort of history, uh, uh, and the name of that is Ubar, U-B-A-R, uh, which is the Scythian Sarmatian word Uper, and which, again, gets translated over time into uh, the Tuatha Danan and the Celtic language as Ober. And when you look at overlord, which the Pendragons were and the Tuatha Non were known as and uh, sort of that Celtic sort of uh, lordship, they were known as an overlord or overreign, O-V-E-R-R-E-I-G-N, which is the same as overlord and which is transliterated as Oberon. So you see all of this bloodline and stuff intermixed with Oberon, the king of the fairies in Midsummer's Night Dream, and of course who is married to Titania, the name of a Nephilim. Now, the word Uper, U-P-E-R, uh, is, is an important Tuatha Danan fairy title deriving from the Scythian Sarmatian Upiers. And that's the tradition. The Upier is the tradition of the ancient vampire. Now, the Scythian and the Sarmatians, as I mentioned, were the snake people clans that migrated from northwest Turkey, uh, Sparta, Scythia, and Sarmatia, who they believe that they descend from Aryans, who they believe are Atlanteans. Okay, and the Nephilim that they descend from are names like Celtes and Scythes and Elbion and Gog. And, and a few other names that go, uh, I think uh, there's another one that's very close to, uh, I think, uh, Galates, is, is it? Which is, again, very similar to the sort of the Galatian name. But anyways, all in this northwest Tur- Turkey area where they escape out of Tartarus, um, 
after the flood to repopulate the earth. And how they arrive at that is, is in the Titan Rebellion, you have the Titans who lose, who rebel against the gods being imprisoned in Tartarus. Uh, and they escape after the flood to repopulate. They go down into uh, the Middle East, as that belief goes, up into the north, into uh, Russia, into Germany, into uh, Norway, to become the sort of the blonde hair, blue-eyed Aryan strain descending from Titans. And then the, the other strain migrates to England and to Ireland to become the red-haired, green-eyed strain of these giants and, and pale skin. And so as we move this sort of back into history and understanding that Vladimir or Vlad is a princely title of the Slavic people who descend from the Scythians out of northwest Turkey, understand that the word strigoi is Romanian for a witch. And or a vampire and popular as a, a word using for a vampire as it comes out of Romania. And of course, the Latin word for strigoi is strix, S-T-R-I-X, meaning screech owl. And of course, vampires are night witches and upiers and oberons, as all of these words and etymology starts to tie tie back. Screech Owl, I just want to say this real quick, I don't want to get you off track, but Screech Owl shows up in the Bible. Isaiah 34, 13 to 17, right? And so let's just finish off with this. Uh, so Lilith um, is known as a night demon and who lives amongst Screech Owls. And uh, Lilith is L-I-T-H is the Hebrew word for screech owl, and it hopped on one foot like a goat. And this is very similar and connected to the word lamia, and that's a blood-sucking demon known as a female upier, or female vampire. And Lilith is known as a lamia, and a lamia flew at night like a screech owl in Greek mythology. And it was a killer of infants and of child sacrifice, just as we know Lilith coming out of Sumerian and Hebrew uh, prehistory through legends and, and outside the Bible sources. And Lilith held, as we mentioned, the mat matrilinear or the matriarchal inheritance of Malkut, which she inherited from, guess what, Tiamat, Queen Tiamat, which is also the same word that transliterates uh, out of Sumerian mythology and Mesopotamian mythology, whether it's Lotan or the many other names, uh, for a being that we know as Leviathan, which is this great dragon. And I think we mentioned also Tiamat in the last show created the, the crab, which were the scorpion-like beasts that guarded, helped guarded the dogs, that gods that are... Um, I guess that was a Freudian slip dogs <laughs> gods that come out of the abyss in, in Revelation 9. <laughs> um, but anyways, pretty accurate. And so she held the Lilith held the the rings of the kingship, which is part of the ring lord uh, allegory that goes into Lord of the Rings. And Lilith, uh, as I mentioned earlier, was an allegory for a screech owl. Uh, and that, that word goes back, uh, to, uh, in, in the Bible out of Isaiah. If you take that back, it goes 
back to uh, a screech owl or Lilith. And, of course, um, Lilith is also part of the allegory that gets woven into the fairy bloodline, the matriarchal bloodline that we talked about in the Grail, because um, she is uh, part of the whole allegory of the Dulac family, which is is, is of the water uh, and the fairies uh, that guard the portals um, in, in the waters, you know, the ladies of the lake, right? This is... Uh, an allegory that goes back to the fleur de lis, which is an allegory for Lilith again. So, if I'm if I'm not mistaken here, you're you're mentioning there's a connection to the fleur de lis and Lilith. Now, the fleur de lis, we see it on the Saints, the the football the football team, the Saints. We see it all over New Orleans. It's a very very popular symbol in French history, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the symbol fleur de lis is that's actually directly connected to Lilith. Yeah, it because it's a lily, and all things with lilies in the occult connect back to Lilith as one of the very, very close to founding matriarchal bloodlines uh, of the Nephilim. And when we look at where else we might see the fleur de lis, I mean, you have it on the French kingship. Okay, that's fine. Those are the bloodlines of, of the Nephilim as they come through many of the French kingships. But it's also the emblem of the Priory of Sion just as the rose is, and just as the rose is also uh, synonymous with, with the grail. All of these allegories and symbols all connect back. And we're going back to dragons here. Like, like there's, there's these connections here. Um, I want to just be point blank and ask you a question, and uh, people can agree or disagree. That's fine. But from your perspective, do you believe the dragons, and I say plural, but the, the dragons in general, the real dragons, um, and, and, and we're going to get into this here in just a, in a few minutes, hopefully. But do you believe that the dragons are direct connections with the entities that we know as the fallen angels? Yes, um, but in a, in a couple of different directions. Certainly, if you take a seraphim angel who has a, a face like a viper or a snake and you put wings on it, you have a flying dragon. And in antiquity, as we mentioned in the last show, dragons and serpents were considered the same physical animal in the world. So if you had the serpent in Eden who, you know, talked, was intelligent, walked on two feet, had hands, one can imagine there was probably ones that had wings as well that would also be part of that flying dragon uh, sort of uh, uh, imagery. So I think all of that whether it's Nakash or it goes back to Seraph or Seraphim, all of that derives from the the understanding that these were a snake-like being and they reproduced. And they may, uh, I don't can't say for sure whether or not the serpents of Eden somehow survive uh, and not are, aren't crawling on the belly, but perhaps some fallen angels found a way to uh, save them, but we have nothing scriptural on that. Um, but we do have the descendants of the Nephilim as they come out of Genesis 6 uh, and the creation from the seraphim angels as continuing on, the, on that sort of reptilian lineage. So, yeah, the question is, is do, do I think dragons are directly related to, uh, to, to fallen angels and rebellion? Absolutely. Because even in Leviathan and all of the different accounts around the world during the creation of the earth, you have this rebellion that's going on with these uh, these serpent-like uh, beings of creation. 
And in this dragon research, we find that there are people today who communicate with dragons. Now, I know this sounds crazy to some people. It sounded crazy to me. But there are people who believe that dragons are extra dimensional or interdimensional entities that even though we don't see them, they're still existing in our plane. And um, there are people out there who, who literally they will channel and communicate with these entities. You know, when people think that they're talking with dragons, whatever they are that they're talking to, and we will talk about that in detail in a second, is, is if they're talking to a seraphim or a naga, they may believe they're talking to a dragon. This takes me back on a personal journey that I was on. Uh, I was uh, I was actually a personal trainer uh, years ago, and my boss, uh, who was who was an, he was also a personal trainer, um, really nice guy. And I, I want to go ahead and get it out there that even though I expose the occult and and the wickedness in the world on a regular basis, um, it doesn't mean that I hate people that practice these things. It's kind of like with homosexuality. I disagree with it. I believe it's biblically wrong, but I don't hate the people. And, you know, this guy did not claim to be a Christian. And so I had an open opportunity to get to know him and talk about the gospel. And he invited me over to his home and I went and uh, he was so excited to take me up into his ritual room. And uh, and I tell you, Gary, I didn't want to go. I, I really didn't want to go. But I, I said, OK, I, I didn't want to offend him. He was you know, I, I was his guest. And so I'm praying in my spirit as we walk up into the ritual room and we get up in there. And he literally, he's got, it's a full-blown library of occult books and all types of talismans and different, you know, we'll just say different tools for his craft. And he was explaining to me, he pulls a book off the shelf and it's a book on dragons. And what was really weird about this is that he's showing me how dragons throughout history have existed with man. They've coexisted and they've been like gods to man. And I mean, and I'm not going to go into detail here because there's blasphemy involved. And I remember reading some passages in the book and I was like, wow, this is just crazy. And he says, yeah, we, we've opened our house up to dragons. And I'm like, OK, well, that's that's uh, that's that's really interesting. And he said, yeah, he said, you got to be careful where you step because they're they're interdimensional. They're spirit beings. He says they can they can literally manifest physically or they just they, they basically exist in, invisibly to our eye, but they still communicate with him. And so I really wanted to get out of the house. I, I was ready to leave about that time, and I didn't stay much longer. But when he, he explained this to me, and uh, when I, I was talking to you before the show, Gary, and you mentioned to me that, yes, that these things could fall into the category of uh, an entity that would be a changeling, that if they did appear, they could take on that form, um, or they could just you know, be a, a spiritual entity that's communicating back and forth you know, telepathically with these people. So... Uh, you know, I, I didn't want to throw too much of a curveball at you, but that's why I brought it up before the show. What we do know is they all sort of relate this back to this uh, watcher sort of ideology that they've been watching humankind and it's their, our development over the, the millennia. And that this is like the, the, the celestial masters or as I like to call them, the celestial mafia uh, or the great white <laughs> or the great white brotherhood. Right. This is all part of. Eastern Buddhism, it's part of New Age, it's part of Rosicrucianism, that they're talking to these spiritual guides, masters, and there's probably different orders of the ones that they're talking to, right? So not all the angels uh, were imprisoned in the abyss, only the impassioned ones as we understand it. So that means there's a whole host of angels that rebelled that aren't in the abyss but are still in a state of rebellion. 
And so they may be following whatever guidelines not to be put into the abyss, but they're still out there. And there could be a great number of them out there because if we understand in Revelation that there's 100 million angels that were created, 10,000 times 10,000, as I I recall the quote, and then in Revelation 12, a third of them either rebelled or will have rebelled by the end time, that leaves 33 million. So uh, there's quite a few that are still probably out there in behind the scenes directing probably the demon spirits of the, the Nephilim who no longer have bodies. So I think they're I think they're creating delusions in all sort of aspects. But as you get into meditation and trances and occult rituals and start to communicate, you're communicating with a whole host of these that are, are, are guiding um, these occult societies. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Um, one of the questions that would come into play here um, in dealing with, and I'll just use Dracula for, for one example here. Um, going back before he was born, you know, are we dealing with, from, from your research or even your opinion on the matter, um, are we dealing with a guy who was already in a Nephilim bloodline before he went through his, his pact, his blood pact or his blood ritual? Do you believe that he was already part of this lineage? Yeah, he takes his lineage back to the Scythians as well. So you have this 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 royal bloodline that connects themselves right back to uh, this uh, the same people that the descendants of Japheth intermarry with, and I think take some of the names as particularly Gog and Magog because those are both names of giants and titans out of greek mythology and i think they intermarry with them and so they believe that their bloodline yes goes back to these titans who escaped out of tartarus so he was already a reptilian in nature but uh, i'm going to use the term sleeping giant per se he's basically a sleeping giant reptilian and then he goes through this ritual and it awakens those things and then it takes him to another level to where he's able to do things that the average human would not be able to do yeah, that's uh, that's basically the the, the understanding, um, and of course it's it's trying to bring back that godlike quality that the demigods or the nephilim had. So it may be as much as a mythos dream as actual physical superiority, but we don't know. I mean, we don't know because once you get into a certain level of the occult societies, I mean, it, it's it's an iron door, and, and secrets just don't get out. Um, but they continue to drink blood because they believe it does lengthen their lives. They believe it does make them more superior with their cognitive abilities. Um, but again, we don't know. So um, we can only speculate that that's the case. But certainly in the past, I mean, who they take all of their allegories from uh, – you are pretty much reflective of, of their belief system. But again, it's heavily encoded with genealogies and things like that with the metaphors and stuff. So you have to be a little bit careful with that as well. Absolutely. We, we just we know that so much has been passed down from these historical accounts. So many cultures around the world have, have gripped onto these things. They have they've literally held them close as if it was gospel and their religious groups. And they reference back to these people, they reference back to these entities, and they believe with all their heart that this really did happen exactly like they believe. And one thing we find with so much myth is that there's there's generally a decent amount of truth inside of the myth, 
but they're taking a different view than we would take as Christians. And I think that's that's kind of like we see that throughout the the entire hollow earth research that, that I've been doing over the last few years. It's like these things line up with scripture, but they're the opposite view. You know, these people are on the wrong side of the spectrum. And so they're looking at these things as if they are good. And, you know, in their quest for knowledge and in their quest for power or their quest for godliness, because their their understanding of godliness is the absolute opposite of our understanding of godliness. So I think it's important to understand where they're coming from and what they believe. Um, now, the idea of Transylvania, people can go to Transylvania even today. Um, and they've got castles, ancient castles that are set up over there. Uh, matter of fact, I, I saw a TV show years ago where some some young men went over to the actual castle that was uh, at least advertised as the castle of Dracula. Now, it's kind of odd to think that people would want to go experience this, you know, this location. Uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is what Paul wrote about in Ephesians about, you know, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but we're actually wrestling with principalities. And I would imagine that to go into a location like Transylvania with so much bloody history and occult history, there would be some pretty large scale principality issues going on over there. Oh, I would think so. I think there's collections of evil that uh, remain around the world. And I think you're going to get a, a very large sense that there's evil when you when you go through those areas because it just houses that ancient um uh, Knowledge and that ancient uh, mythology is, is, is what they believe. So um, I think, I think, yeah, you would get that sense. Now, what do you know about the movement, the, this whole vampire movement, or we'll just? And I hate to use that terminology because that's kind of what we call it today. But what what would you say is going on in Transylvania today? I mean, is there still an is there still this lineage that has their roots in the ground over there that they're still practicing the blood drinking? <laughs> Yeah, I think so. Um, certainly, you know, again, if you if you if if you buy into the understanding that the royal families are these Nephilim bloodlines, and that people like the the Windsors take their lineage back to Vlad the Impaler, then and you understand that blood drinking is part of secret society ritual in occultic uh, religious ritual and is still done at the high levels and that these are all part of the same organization, then, yeah, it makes sense that it's done on a fairly regular basis. And I think people underestimate um, how strongly believe the spurious forces believe in their religion and the rituals and the things that they do because they are in contact, as you've mentioned, and I talked about with their gods uh, in the spiritual realm, no matter how they present themselves to them. Uh, and so they're always paying homage to them today. And these royal bloodlines go around the world. And, you know, I, I did a, a posting out on um, uh, Vladimir Putin. And again, you know, same name that, you know, uh, Vlad the Impaler has. It goes back to that princely title. Yet Vladimir Putin's bloodline only goes back to his grandfather. And it's mysteriously, there's nothing there before. But typically what would happen with the princes of Russia if they were to have a child outside a wedlock, um, they would give it a shortened version name. And uh, in the area where, in the Tver region, T-V-E-R, where Putin comes from, uh, there was the Putlanin. 
or Putyanin, as, as there's two different ways of spelling that name. And Putin isn't a family name in the history of family names in Russia. It comes out of nowhere in the 18, middle 1800s. And there's only one branch that's left today because his two brothers died. So he's the only one. But the Putyanin, they go back to the original czars and Vladimir, uh, Prince Vladimir of the czars out of the uh, Tver and the Ukraine region who are the direct descendants of the Scythians. So you have these bloodlines and people out of these bloodlines holding power not only in Russia today, if that indeed is the connection, because, again, there's nothing to connect that other than sort of the dots I've connected there. But you know, if you go into anywhere around the world, I mean, one of the mistakes that people think is is that the collection of the Nephilim bloodlines are the only the ones from the Batalic dynasties out of Daniel that ended up uh, populating the European monarchies. This is a worldwide thing in terms of the genealogies of the Nephilim. And so if you go into India, you have the Singh family that goes back into secret society history and goes back into um, Indian royal families and back to the Aryans. And you've got the Lee family out of uh, uh, out of China that goes back to the sovereign empires and the dragon sovereign empires that we touched on briefly last year. And uh, these are the royal bloodlines that are in power today because Lee is <laughs> – president of China today. And the Li name is all over Southeast Asia that has ruled governments and, and kingships, just as they spawned uh, the Yamamoto dynasty in, depending on whether you want to take it to 600 BC or 200 uh, BC. Um, there's no real formal records behind 200 BC, but they descend from the, the, the Li dynasty. And just as when you get into Central and South America, most people think that the Spaniards wiped out all of the royal bloodlines of the princes of the various Kishamaya, the Miztec, the Toltec, the Inca, and on and on and on of all these different families and the Aztecs. They didn't. They just killed the existing king at that time. But the royal family survived, and within a generation – they were intermarrying with the Spanish and Portugal nobility, and these families were set back, or not not set back, but were re-given their nobility titles, and of course, that came with the intermarriage. So this whole bloodline thing is around the world, and and if somebody doesn't think that they're not interconnected and they don't follow their ancient beliefs, I think that's a bit naive. It is. But just my opinion. It is. You know, one of the things that sticks out to me is that in different cultures of the world, you've got the average layperson. I mean, just literally, I mean, they, 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 we'll just say the average pauper in society, the lower level people who have no direct connections to, we'll say, high ranking occult magic. But in their culture, it's been kind of bathed upon them that it's okay to drink blood. And now they're not out drinking human blood on the low level, but they do. It's, it's very popular. My, my dad was on a mission trip into China and they're out in the countryside. Anybody who's been to China, you know that there are country. I mean, so much countryside out there. I mean, you could take take trains, you know, uh, over over 24 hours out into the countryside and you get out there and there's people literally living off the grid. 
and they're staying at this guy's house and they take a chicken, they strangle the chicken, they cut the head off, and then they literally drain the entire uh, amount of blood from the chicken into a bowl. And the wife starts doing something to it and it starts to kind of thicken up on top. And this is a dish that they believe is a delicacy. Like they would do this. It's a very special delicacy. And my dad was with some of the missionaries and they saw what was going on. And they, their interpreter told him that it was against their belief that they had taken a vow. If I'm getting the story correct, they had taken a vow in their religion to not drink blood. But they honored, they honored my dad and his friends. They didn't have to drink the blood. But it was, you know, this guy was not some major occultist. This, is, this has been taught to them in their culture that there are special benefits of drinking blood and eating the blood. As I said, it thickens up a little bit, almost into like a pudding or something. Yeah, well, you were, you were mentioning in, in China, and they, have, it, they no longer do it uh, for the most part, at least in public or in public restaurants. But they used to serve, and I did travel in China, so I know this. Uh, I missed the meal because I picked up a bacteria, fortunately. But they went out to eat snake that night. Uh, which is quite appropriate to what we're talking about today in terms of uh, the reptilians and, and the snakes and everything. But beforehand, they served what looked like a tomato soup. And uh, as my counterparts that were traveling with me were, were eating it, they said, this is very interesting uh, tomato soup. And, uh, you know, the host, well, one of the hosts uh, spoke up and said, we don't have tomatoes in China. We have to import those. So we don't make tomato soup. That's the blood of the snake you're eating. Oh, so those traditions, those traditions are still out there, and in ways, as you mentioned, that people don't normally think about it as well. Yeah, they don't understand that the history of this is occultic. Um, but you know, I, I do want to make a point here. Um, one of the, there's a TV show that's on Netflix, and if you know what it is, ladies and gentlemen, you know you'll know by what I'm talking about. I don't even want to mention the name because I don't want to. I don't want to recommend it. And in the past, I, you know, you know how it is, Gary. I'll say I watched this show or that show for research, and then I get emails from people criticizing me. Well, how dare you watch that? You know, I, I have to keep up with what the media is teaching people because, you know, we're, we're watchmen. We, we want to warn people about things, and we believe that TV shows and movies are telegraphing literally the truth out to people. They're putting bits of truth out there, and um, it's conditioning. It's all pre-programming. You know, the Illuminati will telegraph their punches. If, you, if you're not familiar with this term, folks, just Google it. But... This, this particular TV show, we find out that one of the main characters is an Al Pierre. I mean, he is. Uh, that They use that word in the show. And he looks like a human, and he comes from a very strange royal bloodline, and his family is in charge of this town, and um, his mother is the same. You know, he's got a freak for his sister. I don't, we don't know what she is exactly, but he has these these moments where he he gets really hungry for blood and he transforms his his teeth kind of come out like needles kind of like the naga and he not only drinks the blood but he eats the flesh of humans like we we see him in a couple situations where he doesn't just drink but he's eating the flesh and you know Steve Quayle in in the uh, deleted scene for the Hollow Earth movie we we put the deleted scene out on YouTube he makes a statement that cannibalism is getting it's literally resurfacing in, mo- in our modern world, it's resurfacing as a very popular practice. And he 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 literally said that we're going to be seeing more and more of this. And as, as crazy as it sounded, I hadn't heard much about it. But the months that would follow, Gary, I started hearing reports on, on different international news sites where cannibalism is now happening in the Muslim world. Uh, I mean, we're, we're seeing it in multiple cultures that they're they're cannibalizing people. Um, I know it's it's very popular in Africa and other places, but the idea of the the the, the whole cannibal thing 
it's not just eating the flesh of humans, but it's also taking in the blood of humans. And I wanted to see if you have any connections for the cannibalism. I mean, we know that cannibalism goes back to the Nephilim, that they would devour the flesh of humans. Well, it says in the days of Noah, that's what Nephilim did. And again, we don't get that necessarily out of the Bible other than the laws that, you know, are laid down in, in, in the law with the Israelites by God. But if you go into the book of Enoch, the Nephilim turned on humankind. And not only did they drink their blind, uh, drink their blood, they consumed human beings en masse. And I think uh, that's what, uh, you know, we're going to see more of that. Uh, in in the end time. Now, one of the other things as in that, the days. Go ahead. I was just going to say, underline as in the days of Noah. It, it really is, and, and I think that people people like to kind of close that scripture off. They try to say, well, I mean, you know, they say, well, it's just basically um, people are going to be not expecting the judgment of God. They're going to be getting married, and granted, that is part of it because that's part of what took place in the days of Noah. But we can't discount the fact that we are seeing a revival of the days of Noah, far beyond people running around, you know, blind to the judgment that's coming. There's so many more tidbits in there that we study the days of Noah and we're like, wow, we are living in the revived days of Noah. It's so much deeper than that. And the average person, uh, they, you know, we get accused all the time. I, I don't know if you do, Gary, but I get accused semi-regularly by the Sethites, people who believe that Genesis 6 is all about the, the, the lineage of Seth which were godly people, by the way. They were godly. Seth was a godly, uh, you know, godly son of Adam and Eve. They say that Seth, it was his descendants that were the fathers of the Nephilim. Well, that's complete garbage. That has, that holds no water whatsoever. You can't prove this with scripture. Matter of fact, you can disprove it with scripture. Um, if they were a godly lineage, how in the world would they be fathering cursed giant entities? Uh, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. But, you know, it's like a house of cards. They're, they're systematic theology. You pull one card out and it just it crumbles. And so we know that it wasn't Seth and his lineage that created the Nephilim. We know this. But many people will accuse us of going to Gnostic beliefs because we teach the Nephilim, the true angel view of the Nephilim. And so people always like to say, well, you're going back to the Gnostic stuff. Well, no, we're showing that it's that the Gnostics believed it, but the Bible teaches it, too. You know, we're showing both sides of it. But there are so many things going on today that are clearly linked to the days of Noah. And I think that a true biblical researcher is going to be able to see these things. And, and I truly hope that the people that don't see these things, I hope and I pray that their eyes be opened because I think that they're going to be at a major disadvantage in the last days. You know, if, if the Lord tarries and we have to live another hundred years or a thousand years on this earth, um, people who don't know the truth about these things, they're going to be shocked when more becomes uh, unveiled to the common eye. But I want to also mention the idea of when you're when you're eating the flesh and drinking the blood. I recently read a show last week about some of these Catholic miracles that were that are documented in the official Catholic encyclopedias. And, you know, I, I'm not really sympathetic to Catholicism, um, although I, I do know that there's some good people that, that do practice Catholicism. Um, but there are miracles that they've documented that the Vatican has approved where they say that the their Eucharist wafer has actually transformed into cardiac flesh tissue. And they've had it tested. It's been validated by the Vatican, and they have printed it in their official encyclopedias. And they also say that the, the wine has actually turned into blood. And this is very interesting because in the Eucharist, they, you know, the Eucharist um, you know, ritual, they believe that you're actually eating the flesh and drinking the actual blood of Christ. And... I can't help but to see this. I mean, I do believe it's a major perversion of what, you know, what we would call the Lord's Supper. 
uh, or you know, doing this in remembrance of Christ, but the idea of Catholics believing they're actually eating the actual flesh and drinking the actual blood of Jesus, um, I have to kind of draw the parallel back to what we've been talking about of, of eating flesh, cannibalizing, and drinking blood. Well, you can see that coming into enforced ritual worship if you buy into the fact that Rome is the city of the universal religion and uh, Catholicism will be completely turned around to start the universal religion and then they'll change doctrine completely, which our current pope is currently doing. Um, And you can see that that meaning of the uh, Eucharist will distinctly change to that ancient ritual of eating flesh and blood. You could see that happening. Oh, absolutely. And I want to say this. Um, there is a lot of Catholics out there right now who have stood up against this pope. And, he, and not just this pope, but even the, the, the last pope. Um, there are Catholics out there that are very conservative in their beliefs. They may not partake in all the, the paganistic rituals of Catholicism, but they, they will always call themselves Catholic because that's how they've been raised. And, you know, just like not all Baptists are going to heaven, not all Catholics are going to hell. And, and look, people, you can write me and criticize me for saying this, but I know people who call themselves Catholic, who they, they know the real Jesus. They do not worship Mary. They do not worship saints. They're very solid in their faith, but they will always call themselves Catholics. You know, and you can call it, you know, ignorance if you want. I don't care what you want to call it. But there are people out there who have stood up against the Vatican and they have literally separated themselves from the modern Catholic faith. In, in, in lieu of certain events that have happened. So I think more people will be waking up. I do question the leadership of, uh, of the Roman Church. And I think from my understanding of prophecy that they do play a way in um, helping to turn and destroy Christianity, first from with inside Catholicism, uh, and, and then it spreads to the rest of Christianity and then to the rest of the world for the Universal Church of Babylon. But that's just my under, understanding of prophecy. You know, I've known I've known Catholics in my life that, that they knew the gospel just as well as I did. And they they saw the flaws in the Catholic Church. They, they said, you know, it's not biblical to pray to Mary. It's not biblical to pray to the saints. And that's kind of like us as Christians finding things in our churches that aren't biblical. You know, I mean, there's things yes, that I, I mean, we, exactly. see, we see things on Sunday at some churches and we're like, that's not biblical. I'm not going to support that. I'm still going to call myself a Christian, um, just like some Catholics say, I'm still going to call myself a Catholic. But they stand up and in their personal faith, they don't follow those practices. So, you know, a dear friend of mine that I grew up with in Texas, and uh, I'm not going to say his name. I don't want to embarrass him. But he has all, you know, he told me that he really disagrees with some of these these practices of the Catholic Church. But he's always wanted to call himself a Catholic because that's what he's always, you know, he's been raised to call himself that. And, uh, you know, and I love him dearly. And he told me recently that with all the things that the, the Vatican is coming out with publicly and, and, you know, currently, he's had to separate himself. And he says, I can't call myself a Catholic anymore if I'm going to be painted with that brush. And, uh, and, and I'm like, wow, I never thought I would live to see the day that you said these words to me. You know, and we used to joke about Catholicism back and forth, but, you know, I, I, I don't want to joke with him anymore because it's, it's personal for him now, you know, and, um, but, you know, it's, we're living in those days. I think people of all religions are going to be waking up to the true gospel. Um, that's my prayer. The Bible says that the, the harvest is plentiful. Jesus said this, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There are so many people out there that are going to be accepting the gospel and we need to be praying for more laborers to share the real gospel. Because religion in and of itself that we see in our modern world, under every type of name, 
it generally pulls people away from the truth of Scripture. Even Christian denominations are chipping away at the true foundations of Scripture. And so it's important that we, 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 we understand the gospel that the Bible presents, not the gospel that these religions are trying to twist. So again, I, you know, I call myself just a Bible believing follower of Christ. I have no problem calling myself a Christian. Um, I don't care what the church is doing. I'm still going to call myself a Christian because I believe I'm, you know, I know I'm a follower of Christ. Uh, and as, as a Christian, we don't want to take part in any parts of these things, the blood drinking, these rituals. We don't want to take part in any type of magic or new age mysticism. That's why we expose what we're exposing here. Um, now, I, I, again, I'm, I'm going to go on a rant. You know, I'm sorry about that. Let, let me draw us back to the topic, Gary. I know we're, we're almost out of time. Um, getting back into the idea of these Alpiers, um, many people believe that these are still currently living among us today, that they are continuing in these rituals. Um, interestingly, many of our presidents, most of our presidents that we've ha- ever had in the United States have been Freemasons. And if they haven't been Freemasons, they've been part of even more uh, sinister societies. Uh, far deeper than Freemasonry goes. But we know for a fact that when you become a 32nd degree Freemason, on record, unequivocally, this can be proven, that you go through a ritual, as you would every degree of Freemasonry, you go through a new ritual, you learn more secrets, but at the 32nd degree ritual, you go through this 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 whole ritual where you drink blood out of a human skull. And uh, I first heard this from my dad. My dad is a, is a Baptist pastor, he had a deacon in his church who was a very close friend of his. And this was why he was in New Orleans. And he said this man came to him and told him that I just left the lodge. And my dad says, well, praise God. You know, praise God you left the lodge. Good. And he said, I was, you know, I, I knew something was off when, I, when they offered blood communion. You know, it was you had to take blood communion out of a skull, a human skull, in order to become a 32nd degree Freemason. Well, I looked into it. Come to find out, several other people that I came into contact with had family members who are still active Masons, and they told them the same things. When they when they heard me tell this, they asked their family members, and the family members said, yes, in fact, we took a blood communion out of a human skull. Now, this is kind of telling, because I, I also know another Mason that I asked personally. I looked him dead in the eyes, and I asked him, and, and he nodded. He, he wouldn't say it, but he nodded. You know, these things are real. These secret societies of, of you know, our presidents, our, our CEOs of major companies sometimes, I mean, major power people that are part of these secret societies, they are still drinking blood, human blood, in their rituals today. And that's part of, right out of the uh, Scythian Sarmatian uh, ancient ritual of drinking blood out of skulls. Now, I, I want to make one comment about the Freemasons here. Uh, they have... In modern days, they have kind of softened up on some of their um, their prerequisites, we'll say. Nowadays, if you have money, because some of the lodges you know, in different states, they're hurting for money. And so they have made it to where anybody can come and be a Mason and you can literally elevate yourself. You can, you can go to a weekend conference or maybe two weekends in a row. And you can get crash courses on every degree, basically. And you can earn, your, you can earn yourself up to the 32nd degree within a couple weeks. And they're crash courses, they run through everything, and it's possible that in these crash courses, which by the way, most the real Freemasons out there, they despise this. They will tell you that this is fake, it's not legitimate, and that these people aren't real Masons. But it's possible that in these crash courses, that they have a fake skull, a fake skull chalice, and it's possible that they put grape juice in it, I don't know. But the real Masons will tell you that the true ritual that you have to earn is a real human skull with real human blood. 
And, and this has been validated. And I did, I've done multiple shows on, on the lodge. I think Gary, you and I may have done a show on the lodge. I did a show on the lodge with Doc Marquis years ago, but this is real deal. This, this is the real stuff that people need to understand. This is going on today. And, and our leaders, many of our leaders, you know, the majority of our highest ranking leaders take part in some type of blood ritual. I agree. And, uh, I, I, I think the, the Masons are looking to, to try and get membership in their changing things to a certain degree. But once you get to the third degree in the York Rite or the 33rd degree of the uh, Scottish Rite, everything changes. I mean, the really only requirement has been is that you worship a god. Um, and over time, they'll brainwash you through the various degrees to accept Lucifer uh, as, as the great architect of the universe at the, at the adept level. So I think uh, they may be, you know, loosening things up, but at the end of the day, at the core, at the Illuminati level, at the adept level, they are still a Luciferian, blood-drinking, Nephilim-descending organization. And that's why you have to be invited to become part of the Freemasons. And you may not ever make it to adept level because you don't have pure blood. Um, and I know some actually do. Um, but for the most part, that area is, is reserved for people who have either uh, Nephilim bloodlines of however they prove it, uh, genealogies, Nephilim DNA, spark of the divine, uh, whatever they want to call it, the genomesis, that's reserved for the reptilian bloodlines. And they go right back to their blood-drinking rituals. Now, Gary, I know we're out of time. Can we can we hit one other quick topic? And I, I just want to get your feedback on one other thing if you're not pressed. Go ahead. So I, I've been watching a program called The Iron Fist. It's, a, it's actually a really good show on Netflix. Very, very well done. And uh, it gets into the hollow earth. Um, it doesn't use that terminology, but it, it deals with opening up portals and Kunlun, uh, Shambhala, and some of the mystical things that are they're happening behind the veil in this other realm that they call Shambhala. And they recently came out with a show. It's called Defenders, and it's kind of a spinoff. And it's got uh, it's got Luke Cage, it's got the Iron Fist, it's got the Daredevil, Jessica Jones, you know, the whole array of these these superheroes, and uh, Sigourney Weaver's character. She's uh she's a member of she's like the head of this secret organization called the Hand. And there's five leaders of the Hand. And of you know one finger, you know they, they each represent a finger on the Hand. And the Hand is a major ancient occult society that has I mean they pretty much run things. It's kind of like the equivalent of the Illuminati, but it's broken down to five major players. And each of these five players are ancient. Like they have lived for thousands of years because they have continued in these rituals to extend their lives. And they're trying to capture the Iron Fist so that he can open the portal. We find out somewhere in the series that they need him to open the portal to Shambhala or what they call Kunlun so that Sigourney Weaver, because she's getting close to dying again, and she needs to get this liquid, which looks just like blood. She needs to get this special blood. uh, That's what I'm going to call it out of Shambhala or out of Kunlun. But they need the Iron Fist to open the portal for them so they can get this. They had one serving left, and they used it to resurrect another superhero who had recently died. And they put her in this sarcophagus, this ancient stone sarcophagus. And then they poured this this blood in there, and it literally it multiplied in the sarcophagus, and they brought this superhero back from the dead, but it wasn't her. It literally, it was like the, the, the vessel was there, but they taught her, like it was almost like she was a child again. 
Now, are you familiar with any of the, the lore surrounding this resurrection with, with the supernatural blood? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's in a lot of uh, occult uh, mythology. Even when you see a resurrection of a vampire and Dracula in particular, that you see you know, a drop of blood goes to his lips and all of a sudden it starts to manifest into this growing sort of blood again. Um, difficult to know. Uh, what all of that means, and it's manifested in a whole bunch of other, you know, occult, scientific, horror movie genre as well, where you see that blood uh, uh, redeveloping. Um, it's hard to know exactly where they're, where they're going with that, other than uh, the fact that there is something special in the in the blood of the uh, of the original Nephilim or of the. You know the blood that come out of the uh, the fallen angels that doesn't die because it is immortal, and that's what they're trying to recreate. But uh, inevitably, you know these monsters that are arisen from the dead, whether or not they're the undead or whatever you want to call them, um, they're not the original human being, and they are vessels, uh, and uh, they are either possessed uh, by a demon or they're avatared by a fallen angel. You you pick your poison on that one. Um, but they're not the same, and it seems to be a constitutive part of occult ritual that there's an ability to bring back uh, humans from the dead. Now, when somebody dies, if they are an organ donor, they, you know, people have heard the old saying, we're going to put those organs on ice, we're going to take them, and, and even in movies where somebody would, would kill somebody just so they could harvest their organs, and again, I, I'm only using this as a point of reference. I'm not saying that all this is real, uh, you know, what we see in the movies. But if they, they, you know, when a person dies, they can put their, their organs on ice to keep them, you know, to transfer them so they can be put into another human. Now, if a body dies, you know, in the Bible, we see that when somebody dies, they give up the ghost. In the King James, it says, that, you know, they give up the ghost um, or it's basically like their spirit leaving their body. And it's interesting that the body itself, the shell, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm just going to kind of apply the science to the body as we can apply to the organs. And we know this is we know this is true because organs can last on ice. So if the body goes, if they take a body and do some type of a ritual to it, you know, I think it's possible. And I know this is going to sound crazy to some people. And this may be a conspiracy theory, but we have to understand that these people really believe these things and they really practice these things. And they have for thousands of years. But it's possible if there was a vessel that they deemed worthy of, you know, being inhabited by another entity that if they get this body quick enough into a ritual chamber, that they might be able to resurrect the body, but it's not the soul or the spirit, because we can't do that. You know, that, that goes against the laws of God, but it seems that they might be able to call into or channel in a, a demonic entity to bring that body up, almost like an avatar or like a golem of sorts. Um, and again, this it sounds crazy, though, Gary. Well, it is, but if, again, if you understand um, occultic... Uh language and you understand that they believe in an elixir of immortality that is closely related to the starfire and with menstruum of the blood there's something there that they believe that they can resurrect the uh, the dead with uh, this sort of immortal um, characteristic to certain kinds of blood you know i'm at a point in my life and and where i am in my studies that i'm not really shocked you know these things don't really shock me the way they might used to have shocked me um but anytime we see this type of behavior and it goes directly against the ordained laws of God, literally it goes against the, 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 the structure that God has set up. And we see that it's supernatural in nature. 
we know that we're dealing with demonic practices. And I think we're going to be seeing more and more of these things in the last days. You know, uh, I see Dracula scaling walls. You know, in Bram Stoker's Dracula, we see he was able to scale a wall. Um, you know, and, and there's some interesting thoughts I have about that as well. Maybe we'll talk about that another time because uh, I know we're running out of time here. But um, this is one of those topics, Gary. I think it's very important that people understand that this reptilian lineage is real, that it goes back into ancient history. It's literally maintained. I mean, it, it's, you can't really deny its existence. Well, and they believe it. Whether or not it's true or not, they believe it. And it's what they are doing and what they will do with that belief that's very, very important. And yet we do get hints out of the Bible that we ought to take it serious, where you have, you know, Genesis 3.15 and the seed of the serpent. And I think through Genesis 6, as opposed to Cain, is what we've covered off. Um, But I think that that is, is there somehow, some way. And uh, I think, you know, when you have a a separation of the tares and the weeds, maybe that's another uh, allegory in the Bible that may hint back to that. But that one's a bit more tenuous. But we need to be aware that there is something to the seed of the serpent. There's something to the Nephilim of Genesis 6. And it was there for a reason to prepare us for what was to happen and what will happen in the end time. Well, like the prophecy says in Genesis, there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we know that the seed of the woman translates over to Jesus Christ. And so this is the, the ongoing battle between this reptilian lineage or, and again, we, we, we say reptilian because it's going back to a serpent dragon entity. Um, but I mean, th- this is the war that's going to be going on until Jesus returns. Yes. And destroys this wickedness for this earth age. And I think it's important that we do understand these tactics of the enemy. Um, and, and as we're told in Ephesians 5.11, you know, we are told to take no part in the wicked works of darkness, but to rather reprove them or expose them. And a lot of Christians don't talk about these things. You go to church on Sundays and many times you hear the same message every week. There's so much more to the Bible. And so I hope these types of discussions encourage you listeners to want to research what the scripture says and then compare with historical references to get a better understanding of what these cultures believed. There's so much out there you can find, but you have to make sure that you don't dwell into the the belief systems of these occult groups. You have to make sure you draw a fine line in your research and that you always understand that the Bible is our foundation. So Gary, closing thoughts. I know we've gone over time. What would you like to say in closing? Well, uh, a couple of things is, is uh, you know, in Daniel 2, I think 43, uh, when it talks about the metallic empires and you have the offspring of that, of those metallic empires um, interbreeding with the offspring of humankind, there's a mixing going on here. And that foretells us of, of what's going to happen in the end time, that somehow, some way, Nephilim are going to impact the world in the end time. Whether or not they're recreated descendants, you pick your poison on that one, but they will uh, have an impact in the end time. And we also know that the spirit forces are trying to recreate a new Atlantis, also known as the New Age of Aquarius. It's the same allegory. Why are they wanting to do that? Is because the ancient Atlantean Empire had 10 pieces to its empire and they were trying to form a world government and they have sort of revisited the idea that they were the helm of world government even though the Athenians, according to Plato, defeated them before they could actually enslave the whole world. And what's important about that is is that Poseidon married 
a human female by the name of Climbing and a few other names in, in other accounts, but essentially this, a human female and produced five Nephilim Titan kings to rule over that kingdom. That's what they're trying to set up uh, in the end times. So it's important to understand that these Titans were Nephilim, that they had that serpentine look, that they are trying to take over the world, have been from the beginning, and this they want this rendezvous with destiny in the end time to win their freedom from who they believe is the oppressive God of the Bible. So it's important for us Christians to understand that this is going to happen and somehow, some way, these reptilians are going to affect the end time. And if I could, Justin, I'd like to just recap something I said a little bit earlier that I was a little bit unclear on, I think, in terms of the, of the lily. I just uh, would like to leave and connect it a little bit better. So, you know, the, the lily is a significant um, occultic uh, allegory, and it represents the lily of the valley. Uh, and, you know, as we saw representatives that comes forward in, in, in the fleur-de-lis that becomes the coat of arms for the French kings and for the Priory of Sion, which is the sponsor of the Templars, which is another rabbit hole to go down. But as I connect that back, um, you have to understand Lilith, who is a, a, a female vampire, Upier, um, is the dragon queen of the Anunnaki, or Nephilim. And she's the queen of the dragon court, as they used to call it in Sumeria, variantly known as owl queens, which the Bohemian Grove, who picks and chooses and supports all of the presidential candidates in the United States, has as their uh, imagery for the Bohemian Grove meetings and a big owl that's posted there. And so fairy and owl are the matriarchal um allegories for the bloodline, just as raven, as an Anunnaki type of raven god, and the dragon or the serpent allegory as they also show up, because they show up as both depictions, as for the, the patriarchal bloodline that becomes allegorized through Dracula that we talked about before. But she is queen of the dragon court, and she's likened in ancient uh, writings to lilies and lotus flowers and names that spawn out of that like Lily Lulala just as Lula Lilith is thought to be the consort of or, or the wife of Cain and that all appear all throughout sort of grail ring dragon and fairy culture and and uh, and mythology and what's important about that is is that um, when I talked about the Grail dynasty going back to Lily and the word Dulac and the house Delac of the Camelot uh, families, um, we need to understand that that goes beyond Lilith to her progenitor, which was Tiamat or Leviathan, which was rig- originally a serpent of the sea. So that's how they have these complex layers of allegories that just sort of go everywhere. Now, on the Lilith topic, um, we, I think we just have to insert here, uh, there's a lot of information on the Internet about Lilith. A lot of religions believe in Lilith. They've got all types, I mean, uh, more than we could even compile into one show. And I want to make the point that while I do believe there is an entity known as Lilith, that I, it's kind of like I believe in that there were entities known as the Anunnaki. But the origin points, as, the, as they've told mankind, I don't agree with. And so I think that we, we can say, yes, there's a Lilith entity, but I don't believe that the, the story of her origin is accurate. They, you know, they, they generally trace her back to being the first wife of Adam. Uh, I don't believe we can substantiate that whatsoever. 
Um, but this, this is what entities do. They, they, they bring their own history and they teach that to mankind as gospel. Yeah, that Lilith thing as being the wife of Adam comes through mystical uh, Hebrew roots and an adoption of the Sumerian sort of ideology. I talk a little bit about that in, in my book. And so it's very questionable whether or not Lilith is an actual individual or not. Um, but certainly they believe from the spirit side that uh, she is real and one of the important figures to them in prehistory. And if she was real, she probably isn't a fallen angel. She's probably a female Nephilim and demigod of the very early sort of part of the creation of, of giants in, in the antediluvian epoch. It's interesting because you have these terms floating around when you get back into medieval demonology, which I'd love to do a show on medieval uh, medieval demonology at some point. But you have so many references in, in this this ancient these these old accounts of these incubus and succubus demons. And many people say, well, you know, I was hit by an incubus or succubus while I was sleeping. And many people will think that it's one entity, but it's not because these entities are not omnipresent. And I think it's important to throw that out there. Uh, Christians oftentimes give the enemy too much credit. Um, the only omnipresent entity is God, the Godhead, you know, what we call the Trinity in Christianity. That's the only omnipresent God out there. Everything else is a lowercase g, you know, and, and they're not omnipresent. They can only be at one place at one time, meaning they can only affect one person at one time. So I think a lot of these demon entities, they will, they will either pose as greater entities, you know, for their sake of being worshiped, or they will literally just go and do what they're taught to do by their hierarchy. So I think it's interesting, and, and just to clear myself on something I said, Gary, um, I don't want anybody to come back and say that I'm teaching that dead people get resurrected in the occult. I was using that just to explain that they teach that their bodies, that they will they can resurrect a body, but it, it, in the event that that even did happen, it would not be the person that died. It would just be an avatar. I just want to make that really clear. Um, people misunderstand things, you know. It's not a Christian belief. It's an occultic belief, whether or not it's the mummy horror movies, it's the undead uh, or it's the undead from vampire tales or zombies. Um, it, it's manifested in all sorts of different genres in, in horror and science fiction. So it's it's part of the occult belief, not Christian belief. Yeah, and interestingly, uh, you'd mentioned some of the mystical Hebrew root stuff. Uh, I've not yet seen the new Mummy movie with Tom Cruise. Uh, matter of fact, I'm going to watch it very soon. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing it and kind of breaking it down. But if you notice uh, the demonic mummy female, that, that, and again, I don't want to speak too soon because I haven't seen it, but if you look at the pictures of her on the internet of her face, she appears to have what looks like Paleo-Hebrew letters on her face, which was just kind of interesting. Have you noticed that? No, I haven't seen the movie yet. Man, I know we've gone over time, Gary. We were shooting for an hour and 15 minutes, but um, it's always <laughs> it's just it's always a great discussion with you. Um, and uh, thank you so much from the fourth watch. And man, we, there's a couple shows I'm going to email you about. I, I really would like to to get you back on to talk about some of these topics separately. Um, sure. And lastly, you made reference to Atlantis. You and I did a show on Atlantis that uh, you know, and I'm not trying to toot our horns because we're just we're just people that teach. But it's probably one of the best breakdowns of Atlantis in the amount of time that we had. 
Uh, it's available on YouTube. It's called Atlantis. It's on my Spreaker page as well. Uh, maybe we could get that show shared in the Gary Wayne group on Facebook because, I mean, people need to hear that breakdown. You did a phenomenal job, Gary. So people who want to know about Atlantis, you got to check out that episode. Yeah, it's. I think that's a very good show, and I would also encourage people to go back and listen to part one uh, of of this uh, set of interviews because you'll find the consistency and the connections important if you listen to both sort of back to back. I would totally agree, and uh, you know the show's doing really well. A lot of people have tuned in. Um, you know, we get a lot of we get a lot of thumbs down. We get a lot of negative comments from new agers because. They like they like that we're teaching the information, but then we come in and we tell them the truth about that information from a biblical perspective. Yeah. But you know what? We do these shows not just to reach Christians. We want to reach New Agers with the gospel. That's one of the main reasons that we get into these things. You know, we don't want to see Christians deceived, but we also want to see the unbelieving world come to Christ. So anyway, Gary, thank you so much again. Um, I'll be in touch with you very soon and uh, looking forward to scheduling some more shows. Well, that was an interesting discussion, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And thinking about reptilians and the serpent tempting Eve in the garden, I am reminded of how easily we are tempted to sin. I've recently received multiple emails about people battling different types of temptation. Unfortunately, we will be tempted in this life, but I want to encourage you with scripture. Let me take you all to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Now let me break this down. There is no temptation that you're going to face that isn't common to man. This means whatever you're facing, it's not new. You can take this to the bank. And furthermore, you're not the only one facing it or who has faced it in the past. There is no reason for you to justify sin, even if you feel like you're the only one who knows what it's like to be tempted with such a sin. Temptation can be a struggle, and I know we can all agree on that. But regardless of the degree of temptation that you're dealing with right now, God is faithful. And in his faithfulness, he will not allow you to be tempted above your ability on a personal spiritual level. This means that all the temptation you face has been pre-approved by God. Let me say that again. Every temptation that you will face has been pre-approved by God, and he has made sure that it won't exceed your ability to rebuke it. Now, you may be inviting heavy temptation into your life by opening up doors of wickedness. We often do this with certain behaviors, the people we hang out with, uh, the activities that we partake in. And this is a totally different scenario. But temptation has to be approved by God before it hits your local market. If you don't believe this, go read the story of Job, paying special attention to the process that Satan had to go through before he could attack Job. So not only does God have to pre-approve the temptation before you face it, but according to this passage, God will always make a way for you to escape the temptation. He will always provide an exit door. But here's the challenge. We have to understand the exit strategy. This is vital. We need to investigate how Jesus dealt with temptation in order to better recognize the exit door that God provides us with. When tempted of Satan, Jesus rebuked the temptation with scripture. So we need to know the Bible and we need to hold it in our hearts so that we have an arsenal of weaponry to win the battle. I recommend studying the temptation of Jesus in the Gospels to better see this in action. But let me share one of my exit strategies for temptation. 
Whenever any type of lust or impure thought enters into my mind, I immediately quote Philippians 4.8. I declare that I am going to think on things that are pure and lovely and true. I declare that I'm going to think on things that are praiseworthy unto God. And then I rebuke the temptation. I command it to leave by the authority given by Jesus. And I begin to worship the Lord. And ladies and gentlemen, immediately those lustful thoughts, those temptations flee with a quickness because I make my declaration of faith right out of the word of God. So knowing the word of God and believing it are the pillars of your exit strategy when faced with sin. We cannot forget that God will never allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. And I encourage you to hold fast to this passage and to hide it in your hearts. I recommend memorizing it because temptation is a prowling beast that rarely sleeps. But with the word of God and with faith in Jesus Christ, you can slay that beast every time. Praise God. Knowing that God always equips his children with everything needed for life and godliness is an assurance that we cannot take for granted. Now, if you've never called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you've never entered into the family of God, stay tuned and I'll share with you shortly how this can be your day of salvation. Until the next time we meet again, God bless and good night. If you're listening right now and you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua as your personal Lord and Savior and you haven't accepted his holy sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins, it is absolutely impossible for you to have a solid understanding of His Word. It's also impossible to find protection from the demonic realm and the days that are fast approaching, friends. And furthermore, it is impossible for you to have peace with Yahweh, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the good news. You can start anew right now. You can repent of your sins and you can have the wages of your sins paid in full. Now is the time to repent and turn away from your sins and make right with the will of God. The Bible actually declares that we don't know what tomorrow holds, so we must take action with the time that we have right now. Repentance is the first step, regardless of what you may have heard. This means turning 180 degrees from your past thoughts, actions, and lifestyles that are in opposition to the Most High God. Understand that repentance is a process and it is absolutely attainable because of the grace and mercy and power of God. Because of Jesus Christ and his once and for all sacrifice, you can be forgiven of all of your iniquity and every sin you've ever committed. Yahweh is a jealous God, but he is also rich in mercy. And tonight, if you're willing to admit your wrongs and repent, he is willing to meet you right where you are. And he will show you that mercy right now, friends. The wages of our sin is death. But tonight, we can receive the gift of God, which is eternal life, but only through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. I am so thankful that God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, a living sacrifice who shed his sinless and perfect blood to pay the debt of our sins, which offers us the ability to be seen as blameless before God on that day of judgment. And make no mistake, there will come a day of judgment, ladies and gentlemen. 
Let today be the beginning of your communion and peace with God as you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you can begin putting on the armor of God and growing in an intimate relationship with Him. It is the will of God that you don't perish, but rather that you repent and enter into a relationship with Him based on His terms. If you're not sure of what God's terms are, I want to challenge you to start reading your Bibles and learn firsthand what God expects from you. If you don't have a Bible, we highly recommend that you pick up a King James Bible, which is easy for anyone to find. Jesus Christ is our only hope, friends, and my prayer is that you believe on Him tonight. That's the most important part of the show, and by far the most important decision you will ever have to make in this life. Amen. It's been an interesting adventure tonight, and I sure hope you've all enjoyed this broadcast. If you ever miss a show or would like to go back and re-listen to an old one, every show is archived on our website, fourthwatchradio.com, all spelled out, F-O-U-R-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.com, fourthwatchradio.com. There you'll find links to multiple streaming options, and every broadcast is dated and summarized for your convenience. Everything we offer is completely free, including our mobile apps for Apple and Android devices. You can easily click the link on the website to be taken to whichever app store applies to your device. Be sure to stay tuned in every Thursday for all the latest shows. Like us on Facebook and feel free to add my personal page as well. If the fourth watch is ministered to you and you would like to help support this ministry, you can follow the donate link on our website. I bid you all a week filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you all next week. God bless and good night. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on The Fourth Watch Radio Network.